to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 18, verse 12, as we follow along with today's lesson. He could have easily had dispensed of whatever it was that they used to bind him. As he said, don't you realize I could call 12 legions of angels to deliver me? In fact, I have sort of a suspicion that God had to use tremendous restraint on the angels at that point. (laughs) I'm sure that they wanted to just enter the scene and just really wiped them out. The the demeaning, horrible humiliation that their Lord was being subjected to by man. It wasn't the cords that held Jesus. It was his love for you. They didn't need to bind him. He was bound by cords that were stronger than the ropes that they used. He was bound by his love for you and providing redemption for you. It was his love for me that nailed him to the tree to die in agony for all my sin. It was for my guilt and blame the great Redeemer came willing to bear the shame of all my sin. And it was his love that bound him. He was committed now to the will of the Father, and he was going willingly. He could have disappeared. He did on another occasion when prematurely they were going to try and force him to be king. He disappeared from their midst. Another time when they tried to take him, he just disappeared. He could have disappeared now but he was committed now to the Father's will to go to the cross and provide redemption for us. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now, Annas was the high priest from the year 6 to the year 15. Um. He was a Sadducee, a materialist, and he became an extremely wealthy man. And he made his wealth by setting up little booths in what was known as the Gentile court of the temple. And in these booths, he would sell certified sacrifices. If you brought 
say a couple of turtle doves to offer as a sacrifice. The sacrifices had to be without spot or blemish. And so the priest that would examine the turtle doves, they would look carefully, they would go over it inch by inch until they found some kind of a defect defect in it, and then they would refuse it for sacrifice, and they'd send you over to the booths of the high priest to, to buy certified sacrifices, doves that had already been certified by the rabbis as acceptable. The only problem was, out on the streets you could buy a couple of doves for a quarter, but they were charging $18 for the two doves that were certified. And so the prophet was going to Annas. It was his little merchandising scheme. That was the area that Jesus came into and he drove out those that were selling the sacrifices, those that were changing the money. He drove them out. And so Annas had it in for Jesus. The high priest had it in because Jesus had upset his businesses. And so he was determined that he was going to get him and get rid of him. In about the year 15, Annas came into disfavor with the Roman government. Uh, And so he was deposed by the Roman government. And he had five sons. And each of his sons served as high priest for a period of time. But at that time, it was so corrupted, uh, they would use bribery and, and they would purchase the office, much like in one period of the Catholic Church when uh, the office of the Pope was, was put up for bid and it was sold to the highest bidder. Uh, it was that kind of corruption uh, that existed then and they would use bribery and all to gain the office of the high priest because it meant uh, a lot of money because of the uh, merchandising that was attached to it. And so over a period of time, all five of his sons had served as high priests, but each of them came into disfavor. And so Caiaphas had married his daughter, and he was now the Roman-appointed high priest. However, the Jews did not really recognize Rome's appointments. And they still recognized Annas as the high priest. So they brought Jesus first to Annas. And uh, John tells us of the trial there. It really wasn't very much uh, before they sent him over to Caiaphas. So they brought him bound unto uh, Annas first. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That was Caiaphas, who was the appointed high priest, and he was the one who earlier, as they were saying, what are we going to do with this fellow? All of the people are listening to him and all. He said, don't you realize, don't you understand anything? It's, it's necessary that one man should die that we might save the nation. Now, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Who was that other disciple? We, we don't 
no, it was probably John, but it has been suggested that maybe it was Nicodemus who was a secret disciple of Jesus. It said that he was known to the high priest and surely Nicodemus, a wealthy man and a respected uh, teacher of Pharisee, would be known unto the high priest. Some have suggested that possibly it was Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, but most commentators uh, accept that it was uh, John. But how could John uh, know the high priest and, and how could John uh, have uh, access? Uh, where would the connection be? Because John was from Galilee. Well, John's father, Zebedee, was a very prosperous fishing magnet. And uh, in those days, fish was an important part of the diet. Now, it was impossible, of course, to keep the fish fresh. Uh, the main source for fish was the Sea of Galilee. It was a teeming with fish, as it is today. And so they would have, they would catch the fish in the Galilee and then they would salt them uh, to preserve them and then they would ship them down to Jerusalem. And uh, so it is quite possible that John uh, was a merchandiser uh, working for his dad and that he would bring the fish to Jerusalem. It would appear that John had a home in Jerusalem, and perhaps delivered fish to the high priest uh, because only the wealthy could afford them, and uh, they were considered a very, uh, very much of a delicacy in those days. And uh, the wealthy enjoyed the fish, and so it's possible that John uh, had uh, come into acquaintance with the high priest because of the business that he had in the selling of the fish. But at any rate, uh, as I say, most believe that it was John. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. John uh, really never did refer to himself much, he, uh, as you know, by name, uh, but he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And... Uh, and here the other disciple, and when he talks about running to the garden, and he said uh, that uh, they both ran together, but the other disciple outrun, outran Peter, showing us that he was a faster runner. Uh, and uh, But he said he stayed outside and Peter went in. But he, he didn't name himself in the record, uh, but um, just referred to himself as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. But that disciple, the other one, was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. So he followed right on in because he was known to them. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then went out that other disciple which was known to the high priest and spake unto her that kept the door and he brought Peter in to the courtyard. Now, um, the fact that uh, 
Earlier in the record, he knew the name of the servant, Malchus, the servant of the high priest. The fact that he knew the name of the servant who Peter had whacked his ear off uh, indicates, again, a familiarity not only with the high priest, but with the household, the servants of the high priest. So he brought Peter in, and the damsel that kept the door unto Peter asked, Art thou also one of this man's disciples? And he said, I am not. Now, it would sound like she knew that John was. Are you also? one of the disciples. And Peter denied, saying, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I have ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort. And in secret, I have said nothing. There's no secret conspiracy. Everything I've said, I've said openly. Why do you ask me? Ask them that heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. Now, According to the law, they had sort of the Fifth Amendment kind of a clause in their law where a prisoner could not be asked a question that would bring about self-incrimination. So it was actually not legal for him to ask Jesus this question because it would require self-incrimination. And so Jesus is, is more or less pointing out the fact that that's not a legal question to ask me. If you want to know the story, ask the witnesses. According to the law, the witnesses are supposed to come and bear witness of what they heard. Uh, the prisoner himself could not be forced to testify against himself. And so Jesus was calling to him a point of order concerning the law. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. And he said, do you answer the high priest so? Uh, and Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. And if well, then why do you smite me? So here is a totally illegal process taking place. And, and Jesus, who is just and who is righteous and who is concerned in true righteous judgment, is, is upset uh, with this irregularity according to their own laws. And so he is standing up and challenging them. Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. That was about all that was done there. They then sent him over to Caiaphas. 
And Simon Peter stood and he warmed himself and they said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, having been a kinsman or a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied again and immediately the cock crew. Now, an interesting side light here, um, a possibility, and that's all it is, something to consider. They weren't really allowed to keep roosters in the city limits of Jerusalem. It's much like uh, some of the ordinances that we have in our cities today where you can't keep roosters in your yard because they have a tendency of crowing in the morning and and waking up neighbors. And so most cities have ordinances against keeping roosters. And such was the case in Jerusalem. But it is possible that, you know, someone had kept a rooster and that it was actually a rooster crowing. But there's another possibility, and it's just interesting, and I just throw it out and you can do the same. Uh, <laughs> the Romans had four watches during the night. First one began at 9 o'clock and then 12 o'clock and then 3 o'clock and then 6 o'clock. And at the changing of the watch, they sounded a trumpet. And the sound of the trumpet at the 3 o'clock in the morning uh, change of watch or change of guard was called the cock crow. And so it could be that it was the sound of the trumpet of the Romans to change the guard at three in the morning uh, that uh, Jesus had said before the cock crows or before that three o'clock in the morning uh, sound of the Roman trumpet, you will have denied me three times. And uh, that is a possibility. It's just something that, you know, Interesting. It's sort of one of those little Chuck Missler kind of tidbits, you know. <laughs> Been around Chuck too long. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas under the hall of judgment. We are told by John nothing of the trial before Caiaphas. The other gospels tell us of the trial before Caiaphas, how that Jesus was uh, brutally treated, how that uh, he was mocked, how that they put a sack over his head and began to uh, hit him and say, prophesy, who is it that hit you? And so uh, the other gospels tell us of the trial before Caiaphas and how finally Caiaphas said, are you then the Messiah, the son of God? And Jesus said, you said it. And so he said, tore his clothes and said, what need we have further witnesses? We've heard himself, himself, you know, and what do you say? And they all say he's guilty of death. And so then they took him over to uh, the uh, Roman court of uh, Pilate in order that they might get the sentence of death. So John leaves out all of that trial before Caiaphas. The whole purpose was to develop charges against Jesus that could be taken 
to the Roman government. The charges before the Roman government could not be charges on religious grounds. Rome didn't care. They had to be charges of some kind of insurrection of Jesus against Rome. And so there were false charges. They said that Jesus was advocating a tax revolt. He was teaching that they shouldn't give taxes to Caesar. That's wrong. They tried to trap Jesus on that issue. Remember, they said, is it lawful for us to give taxes to Caesar? And Jesus said, show me a coin. And he said, whose image is that? And they said, Caesar. said, well, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God. Uh, But now they are saying he was advocating not paying taxes. And then they were saying that he was an insurrectionist. He was going to rise up against Rome, that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews and was going to lead a revolt of the Jews against the Roman authority. So those were the charges that they decided to bring against Jesus when they brought him to Pilate. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves did not go into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. This is one of those cases where these guys are doing such a totally corrupt thing. I mean, you can't imagine anything more corrupt than this. They are conspiring to see a man put to death who has not done anything wrong. Wicked, vile, evil. And yet, they are careful not to go into the Roman court because this is Passover day, actually, and you're not to be where there is any leaven. And it's possible that there was leaven within the court because, you know, the Romans didn't care about the bread not having leaven. And and so uh, religiously just keeping the letter of the law and yet so totally corrupt. You know, it's interesting how corrupt religious people can sometimes be. You know how they are so careful in, in the little religious things. As, as Jesus said, you strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. And this is so true uh, of, of religious people. They, they are so interested in some of the little fine details of, of the religious traditions, and yet uh, they, they violate so completely real judgment and and real honesty and integrity. So Pilate went out to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said unto him, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Uh, There was no love between Pilate and the religious people. In fact, Pilate uh, had been in trouble with them before. They had complained to Caesar concerning Pilate. 
when Pilate first became the governor over the area, uh, the capital uh, of the area for the Roman government was in Caesarea. But the governor also oftentimes came to Jerusalem because that was sort of the center of the, of the nation. And when he first came to Jerusalem with his soldiers, on the tops of the, uh, of the poles with the flags that they would carry the different legions, uh, they had a little image of Caesar. And so as he came to Jerusalem, the religious leaders were out there and they said, we won't let you come into the city unless you take the image of Caesar off of the, off of the banners there. Pilate refused to do it. And so there was quite a confrontation. And finally, Pilate went back to Caesarea and they followed him back arguing all the way. There were about 200 of them and Pilate sort of threatened them. You know, you don't like it? I'll kill you. And they all just held out their necks and they said, go ahead, slice them, slice them, you know. And, and he was so moved by that that, you know, he couldn't just kill innocent people like that. So he gave in and they didn't, you know, they took the little images off when they went to Jerusalem. That was one issue, and it was reported to Caesar. Uh, there were a couple of other similar type of issues where Pilate came into uh, disagreement and disfavor with the religious leaders, and, and thus uh, they were constantly reporting him to Caesar. That's why in the next chapter, when uh, he is arguing with them to let Jesus go. They said, if you let him go, you're not Caesar's friend. Uh, ultimately, uh, Pilate was recalled uh, upon the complaints of the religious leaders back to Rome. Uh, and uh, before he got back there, the, the, Caesar, the, the, the uh, Roman uh, Caesar at the time was died. And so he disappeared from history. We really don't know what happened to Pilate after that. But uh, there was bad blood uh, between Pilate and the religious leaders. And so uh, when they brought, he went out and he said, you know, uh, what accusation are you making against this man? And rather than answering his question, they just said, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to you. And Pilate said unto them, then you take him and judge him according to your laws. In other words, washing my hands. I have nothing to do with it. You go ahead and judge him according to your laws. The Jews therefore said unto him, it's not lawful for us to put any man to death. Now, they are revealing their hand. They are not bringing Jesus to be tried. They are bringing Jesus in order to get a sentence of death. They're not interested in a trial before Pilate. All they're wanting is a sentence of death against Jesus. Now, 
they did on it. The power of, of, of capital punishment had been taken from the Jews. Uh, just a not too long ago from this incident, they had lost the power of capital punishment. And so they would, though, you remember Stephen, they stoned Stephen, and, and the manner of the Jews putting a person to death was by stoning. And they could have stoned Stephen, and, and they would have, I mean, they could have stoned Jesus, but uh, they would have had to have answered probably to Rome. And, and so they didn't want stoning, though. They wanted a cruel, torturous death. They wanted to see him suffer. They wanted to see him crucified, which one is one of the most torturous uh, means of putting a person to death. And they wanted to see him suffer. So they wanted the sentence to come from Rome because the Roman form of execution was crucifixion. So they said it's not lawful for us to put a man to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke signifying what death he should die. Jesus, remember, said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And this he said, signifying by what death he should die, that is being lifted up on a cross. And so uh, they are wanting death by crucifixion. So Pilate entered into the judgment hall. He was outside talking to the Jews. Jesus was inside. And he called Jesus and he said unto them, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you say this of yourself or did others tell you of me? Is this a sincere question? Do you really want to know? Is it an honest question? Are you desiring to really know this? Or have others told you? Is this just something that, you know, you've heard? Is that what they are saying out there? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you unto me. What have you done? And so Pilate is interrogating Jesus, trying to find out just what's going on here. What have you done? Why are they so upset? Why are they so angry? Why are they wanting to see you crucified? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. Jesus is now affirming that he is a king, that he has a kingdom, but it isn't of this world. I'm not forming a conspiracy against Rome. I'm not trying to conscript men to rebel against the Roman authority. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. It isn't a material kingdom that I'm going to establish at the present time. I'm going to establish a spiritual kingdom. It will be in the hearts of men, the transformed hearts of men, lives who will be transformed in my kingdom. It's not of this world. So Pilate therefore said unto him, Are you then a king? And Jesus answered, you said it. 
For this cause came I into the world that I might bear witness. For this end, to this end I was born and for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. And everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Yes, I'm a king. This is why I was born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it in justice and in judgment from henceforth, even forever. Yes, I'm a king. To this end I was born. For this cause I came into the world. For what cause? To establish a kingdom. To establish the kingdom of God in the hearts and in the lives of those who will submit to his authority. So that you who have received Jesus Christ as your Lord, you have surrendered your life to Jesus. You've said, I want you to take over my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. You have entered the kingdom. You are a part of the kingdom of God, this spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to establish. My kingdom is not of the world. It's a spiritual kingdom. He rules in the hearts of those who have heard his voice and who have responded to his call. It's so good. It's so wonderful to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As the scripture says concerning Abraham, that he considered himself just a stranger and a pilgrim here. He was looking for the kingdom, a a city which hath foundation, whose maker and builder is God. Our citizenship, Paul said, is in heaven, from whence we look for our king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who when he comes, he's going to change our vile bodies that they might be fashioned like unto his own glorious image. Yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom that I'm going to establish in the hearts of people. Not by sword, but by love, my kingdom will be established. And the power of love will be stronger than the power of the sword and shall overcome the sword. Pilate said unto him, what is truth? Jesus had mentioned, I came to bear witness of the truth, that everyone is of the truth, hears my voice. What is truth? This, I think, was said with great cynicism because for years, centuries, the Greek philosophers had searched for truth. And they had come up with many concepts of truth. But one by one, their concepts were argued out by newer concepts. Until finally, the age of philosophy was dying because they had despaired. They figured that truth did not exist. That there was no universal truth. That truth is a relative thing and it is individual 
And thus, what is true to you is true to you, but not necessarily true to someone else. So they got into the existential philosophy where everybody experiences themselves what is true to them, and thus truth is only relative to your background, who you are, where you were raised, the mores of the society in which you live and whatever. That is what establishes truth. There is no such thing as universal truth. And knowing that the philosophers had despaired to discover truth, Pilate said cynically, what is truth? Now Jesus had earlier said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's Pilate asking the truth, what is truth? Jesus is truth. And over and over again, we read through the Gospel of John where Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you. The word verily is truly. He came to bring us the truth of God. What is the truth of God? The truth of God is that God so loves you in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your foolishness, in spite of your carelessness, God so loves you that he sent his only begotten son to take your sins and to die in your place. That if you will believe in him, you might have eternal life. That's truth. God's truth. Pilate didn't wait for an answer. He figured there was no answer. But he went out and he said to the Jews, I find in him no fault at all. The man's innocent. I don't find any fault in him. It is interesting how that God was protecting the witness of the innocence of Jesus. When Judas brought back the money, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. His witness, Jesus is innocent. When Pilate was in the process of judging Jesus, his wife sent a message to him and said, have nothing to do with this just man. The witness that Jesus was just. When the thieves were hanging beside him on the cross and the one thief was deriding him, the other rebuked him and said, don't you fear God? We're here because we deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing amiss. Further testimony to the innocence of Jesus. And now the testimony of Pilate. I find no fault in him. Now, if justice is to be served, at that point he should have brought down the gavel and said, case dismissed. That's justice. But as is so often the case, justice is not served. Nothing new goes way back. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one 
at the Passover. And will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And he is saying it in a snide way, sort of rubbing it in. And they cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Shows you how low they have gotten. Here is Jesus, nothing amiss, nothing wrong. The Bible said he went about doing good, healing all manner of sicknesses and all. And yet when given a choice, Jesus or Barabbas, they said, release unto us Barabbas. We wonder how can people be so hard? How can people be so foolish as to choose Barabbas over Jesus? A man who was known to be a criminal, known to be a robber, a man who was dangerous to the public, dangerous to be out on the streets, and yet they'd rather take their chances with him than with Jesus. Release unto us Barabbas. This business of king of the Jews, Pilate does get the last word. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he has it written above the cross, king of the Jews. He had it put in three languages, uh, Latin and Hebrew and Greek, so that they could all understand it. And that upset the high priest. Remember, they came and said to him, don't put king of the Jews. Put, he said, I'm king of the Jews. And Pilate, you know, I mean, this thing was going on. I mean, there was really, bad blood here. He just said, what I've written, I've written, you know. So he was anxious to get his licks in against them. He was being put in a very awkward position. There was a sense of justice in the Roman courts, a sense of justice at least. And he was being pressured to do something that he knew was wrong. That's always a difficult position to be in when some foolish person in the crowd is trying to push you into that which you know in your heart to be wrong. It always is difficult. They seem to always be there. Those that are leading a person downward. Those who seem to have no interest in the gospel or in Jesus Christ or in their own destiny. They're sort of like the Pharisees that Jesus said, you will not enter in, but you would hinder those who would enter in. They're always there. And they are now seeking his death. They are seeking to force Pilate to make a decision that in his heart he knows is wrong. And so he's upset with them. They've always been upset with him. And so it's a, it's a lot of pressure in all that's going on in these chapters, in this interchange between the Jews. And it continues on into chapter 19. So as we go into chapter 19, we see this whole uh, bantering back and forth as Pilate is determined to release Jesus and they are insisting 
on his death. So we'll follow that on up next week. Father, we thank you for the kingdom of God and the opportunities that we have of submitting ourselves unto the king, bowing our knee before our Lord Jesus Christ, confessing him as Lord and king of our lives, surrendering ourselves to follow him and to live after the kingdom of God. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. The scourging by the Roman government was a method by which they elicited confessions from accused criminals, usually from convicted criminals. It was a very torturous thing. A prisoner was tied to a post in such a way that his back was extended, and then they would lay across the back this whip that had little bits of glass and lead embedded in it that was designed to sort of rip the flesh uh, as it was pulled off. Very painful, and it was used by the Romans, as I said, to elicit confessions. The idea being that if a person would confess of a crime, uh, they would be a little more lenient on the next time they brought the whip on his back. And there would be a scribe standing by to write down the confessions of the crimes, and this way they were able to uh, clear the books on, a little, on many of the unsolved crimes in the community. Uh, it was a common practice to scourge the soldier, I mean, to scourge the prisoners before they were crucified, again, clearing up a lot of the unsolved crimes. It was unlawful to scourge a Roman citizen uh, without his being uh, already condemned, uh, but uh, they would use it as a sort of a third-degree torture to get the prisoners to confess to crimes. In ordering Jesus scourged, it was no doubt to uh, get him to uh, the confession uh, of his guilt concerning the charges that were brought against him by the Jews. The interesting thing is that Pilate was convinced of his innocence and yet had him scourged. But when we read in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 50, that he would give his back to the smiters, and as we read in Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. We realize that even though it was inconsistent with Roman justice to subject an innocent man to this kind of torture, it was something that was designed and planned by God that not only should his son suffer death upon the cross, 
but that his son should also be scourged. But Isaiah, in speaking of this scourging and prophesying it, said, And as a lamb before its shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He had nothing to confess. And thus there is cause to believe that he received the full brunt of the whipping because the idea was if they did not confess, the next lash would be harder and continually harder until a person would be forced by the pain to cry out the confessions of his crimes. Jesus bore that suffering, but as Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. He was suffering for us. You see, one of the consequences of sin in the world is suffering. All of the suffering of the world can be traced back to the introduction of sin. It is sin that brings suffering to humanity. And Jesus is there suffering for us because of the sin that we might be healed. And the soldiers, it said, platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Jesus is now being mocked. Jesus is now being abused by the Roman soldiers. They made a crown of thorns and pressed it on his head. Interesting. Where did the thorns come from? Going back to the Garden of Eden when man disobeyed God and God was announcing to man the results of sin and disobedience, he said, cursed be the ground, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. The thorns are the result of the curse. They say that a thorn is an undeveloped blossom. When the curse is removed, can you imagine how beautiful the desert will be when every thorn becomes a blossom once again? But the thorns came from the curse of sin and thus quite appropriate. He came to suffer for sin, to take the curse of sin, And thus, thorns caused by the curse are placed upon his brow as the soldiers mockingly hail him, the king of the Jews, as they put on a purple robe and do feigned obeisance, and then they smite him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Quite a confession, because if he found no fault in him, then why would he have him scourged? It is thought that Pilate felt that the scourging would placate their bloodthirsty desire for his death, that they would be satisfied if he were subjected to this horrible torture of the scourging. 
According to the historians, many times the prisoners would not even survive the scourging. Many times they would bleed to death or die during this torture. And so he said, I'm bringing him forth to declare to you I find no fault in him. Again, God protecting the innocency of Jesus, making sure that we know that he was innocent, that he was the innocent one suffering for the guilty. We'll return with more of our in-depth study of the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Faultless Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 18-19 through 19 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Lord, establish your reign within our hearts. We're here, Lord, ready to obey and to serve you. We, are, we pledge, Lord, our hearts, our lives, our allegiance to you and to your kingdom. And Lord, we just pray that your kingdom will soon come and that your will will be done here on the earth even as it is in heaven. Lord, how we long for that day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he begins his reign forever and ever. Hasten that day, Lord. We wait for it in eager anticipation. Now, Lord, guide us as we submit our lives to you. Show us what you would have us to do. Lead us, Lord, in your path. In Jesus' name, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. As we look back over the roadmap of our lives, we often see the value of troubled times, personal trials, and even the experiences of pain or the death of a loved one. These are the building blocks that establish God's plan for us. It is with great honor that I'm pleased to introduce Pastor Chuck Smith's autobiography entitled, A Memoir of Grace. You're invited to pull up a chair and listen as Pastor Chuck shares his personal story of how God's grace prepared him for life's purposes. 
Perhaps, as you're reading this story, you'll be prompted to evaluate your own past, your present situation, and that which is yet to happen, and realize that it all plays a part in establishing God's plan for you. See God's grace at work in your own life when you order a personal copy of A Memoir of Grace by Pastor Chuck. God called me into the ministry and how God has just led us step by step. For more information on how to order your copy, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org or call toll-free at 1-800-272-WORD.